Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. So we have really a natural progression these last couple uh, lessons tonight and really uh, Revelation 21 and 22 kind of broken up perfectly for us into three sections. So again, we are going to finish this, Lord willing, by the end of June. Uh, this couple weeks I'll be uh, out of town uh, preaching for my dad in Indiana one of those weeks and then on vacation another week as well. So uh, let's go ahead and just jump into it tonight. Let's go ahead and start in Revelation 21, read verses 1 through 8. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now I'm going to reference some of this here in just a minute. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, as we've experienced a little bit tonight, neither shall there be any more pain, as many of us experience on a daily basis. For the former things are passed away. I can't wait for that day. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. The first and the last really is what this is talking about. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and the unbelieving, the abominable, and the murderers, and the whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Uh, we're going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump into this night. Before I get into that, I'll, I'll probably forget this. It's just a funny thing. As I was finishing up today, I was typing some things out for verse number 8. And, um, you know, a lot of times on Word, you know, they have things underlined if you have a grammatical error or whatever. And it, it didn't have a grammatical error, but it, it, it basically read that uh, they think the subject matter is too explicit, I guess is what it was, or something like that. And, and maybe the subject or the content, content was just, you know, to, it might have offended some people is basically what Word was telling me. And so I just disregarded that and just kept going. Anyway, I thought that was funny. All right, let's go ahead and pray and we'll jump into it. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this day. And Lord, again, I, I thank you for this series as we have uh, walked through this amazing book, this amazing study. And Lord, again, we haven't gone so deep to where we don't understand anything. Uh, we have given uh, what really I believe John is trying to intend to his readers. Lord, there is so much discussion and debate within this amazing book from theologians across all spectrums. And Lord, it's so easy to debate things. And really, there are some things that are okay to, to debate, but there are certain things that are not. And Lord, as we finish up this series, I pray that you'd help us to understand the parts that we need to understand, to realize what John is trying to teach us, what he's trying to give us. And as we close out all of humanity and all of history uh, with forever and, and eternity in this new heaven and this new earth, Help us to see the important aspects that we need to see in the next couple weeks, Lord. Again, we thank you for what we've learned, and we understand that, yet again, it's all about you. All history has been pointing to you, and that you are victorious, and if we are with you, if we are saved, then we are victorious as well. Lord, we love you. In Christ in my pray. Amen. Now, let me ask a somewhat of a debate, debatable, debatable question tonight. 
Do you think it is possible to be so heavenly-minded that we become no earthly good? Uh, Calvin talked a little bit about that on Sunday, so I'm going to answer this question in just a minute. But do you think it's possible to be so heavenly-minded that we become no earthly good? Anybody want to venture anything tonight? Do you think it's possible to become so heavenly-minded that we become no earthly good? Yeah. So there's no way. That's that's a good point. That's a good point. The other side would say that sometimes people are focused so much on heaven of what is to come that they then then don't in turn do what God has called us to do on earth. So there's two sides to the coin. I think if we are truly heavenly minded or eternity minded, as as the apostle Paul says in Colossians three. Set your affections on things above, not on things of this earth. If we're truly living in light of what is to come in eternity, then we'll understand that we have a mission to do on this earth until then. But again, I think all of us could probably attest and say that we have known people that are just so focused on getting home, so to speak, right? And really what happens is they become no earthly good. But is that how a Christian should live? No, exactly. A Christian should as long as we are on this earth, realize that we have a job to do, that God has a purpose for us, a plan for our lives, and as long as we are here, it is our job to fulfill that purpose and to fulfill his plan and really to fail to impact others the way that God placed us on this earth to do is wrong. And sometimes it's very easy to look so much for the future that we forget what we're supposed to do in this present. But if we're looking in the right mindset, like Kim was saying, if we're looking at Jesus and what is to come, then we'll understand what our job is to do on this earth as well. Um, you know, I've heard many songs about heaven. We kind of sang a little bit one tonight. You know, I've heard messages on heaven. And there's, there's so much, again, that I don't understand. And I'm sure there's so much that you don't understand. There's more than 500 references, I believe, in Scripture uh, to heaven. There's over, I think, 50 in Revelation to heaven. But again, with all the references that we have with all of the books, and you can go to a bookstore and you can find all kinds of books on heaven. The reality is there are certain things we know and there are certain things that we do not know. So what I'm trying to give you tonight is not the things that we don't know, but the things that we do know that John gives us. And really what we understand is that he gives us what we need, not always what we want. There's a lot of things that I would like to know in regards to heaven, wouldn't you? There's a lot of things that I would like to know, but we don't always have that. But again, it is a, um, it really is an amazing place, and it's a glorious place. And one day, uh, if you're saved, if you're a child of God, then you will be there. Now, Revelation 21 and 22 bring us to the end of the apocalypse and really the end of the Bible. And these final chapters give us a description of the eternal state following the millennium, the final judgment. The first heaven, the first earth have been wiped away. God will create a new one for the rest of eternity. And really, when you go back from Genesis to Revelation, if you have your notes, you kind of see the, the comparison here of what takes place from Genesis to the end in Revelation. In Genesis 1.1, heaven and earth was created. In, Genesis, or in Revelation 21, there is a new heaven and a new earth created. In Genesis 1.16, the sun is created, and it goes down the list. The night is established, the seas are created, the curse is announced upon mankind. Death enters into history, into the history of the world. Man is driven away from paradise, that utopia, the Garden of Eden, because of sin. 
sorrow and pain enter into the world, the devil appears. But then when you go through Revelation, what you see at the end is there are a new heaven, new earth. There is no more need of a sun because we have the light coming from Jesus. There is no more night. There are no more seas, no more curse. Death exits history. Man is restored to paradise. Sorrow, tears, and pain all in, and the devil disappears once and for all. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. And yet, again, as much as we know, there's still so much we don't understand. So here is what we do know about the future heaven. First thing here in Revelation 21 is this. We will enjoy a new heaven and a new earth. John says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This phrase, passed away, tells us that this present earth will not last forever. It's temporary. Now, it was initially built to last forever, was it not? It was, because when God created everything, it was good. It was, it was perfect, but what happened when sin entered into the world? It marred it, right? It messed it up. So it needs to be restored. It needs to be made new. Creation is in bondage and travail, and even the heavens aren't clean in God's sight. Job 15 talks about that. And God promised us a new place. The old creation has to make way for the new creation. And Jesus calls this, in Matthew 19, 28, the, the regeneration of the earth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul himself talks about different facets of heaven or different dimensions of heaven. He describes three different heavens. The first heaven, which is really the earth's atmosphere where the clouds, the birds fly. The second heaven is really what we see, the galaxies, the stars, the planets, the sun, where all of those reside. And then the third heaven, far above and beyond that, is this unique dwelling place of God where God's angels and saints live forever. Now what we have to understand is when we get to Revelation 21, and I was having some fun conversations with uh, Mike and um, Michael today just about heaven, some things that we don't know, and it wasn't trying to get answers. It was just trying to think about some things. But what we need to know is that the heaven that exists now is not the heaven of Revelation 21. The heaven that exists now is a temporary place. The heaven that is talked about in Revelation 21 is our permanent dwelling. Again, there's a lot that we do know about heaven, but there's some things that we don't even know about heaven now. And remember, as we've talked about in the past couple chapters, once a saint, once a Christian dies in this present life, they will not have a glorified body yet. Their glorified body comes when? Anybody remember? The rapture after that, when, the, when uh, well, we talked about that, a few, I think a few chapters ago. So when, when uh, death and the sea gave up all the dead and everything like that, and they all come together in that glorified state. So really, and, there, and there's a lot of debate and a lot of things, and I'm not going to go into this tonight, and I'm sure some of you would like to, but that's not the point of this. But the point I'm trying to make is that the heaven that we know of today is not yet finished. Believers who die do go immediately to be with the Lord. The Bible makes that clear. To be absent from the body is to be what? present with the Lord. You know, many theologians refer to this as an intermediate state versus the eternal state of what is to come. And Randy Alcorn has a lot of great things to say about heaven. 
And uh, I'd encourage you to, to read his book on heaven. It's just entitled Heaven. Uh, it's a book that my wife and I, my wife more so than me, but uh, she read through that after our son Logan died. And it gave, us, it gave her and myself better perspective. You know, when I was a kid, just being honest, um, the thought of heaven, it didn't necessarily scare me, but it didn't excite me. And I know I probably shouldn't say that as a pastor, but the reason it didn't excite me so much is because what I thought of heaven, my picture of heaven was basically a glorified church service in the sky. And as a kid, I'm like, I do not want to go and sit up in a glorified church service in the sky and listen to a bunch of preaching and singing all day long, all eternity. That does not sound like paradise to me. Again, it was a misunderstanding. And again, you know, we see pictures and these, you know, depictions of, you know, we're floating on clouds and playing harps and stuff like that. It's so much more than that. And Randy Alcorn did a great job in that book. And also Heaven is for Real. It's another great book as well. But it, it gives a different sight, different picture of what heaven might be like. Again, it's a glorious place. And really, we are in the presence of God, in the presence of Jesus. And David even tells us in Psalm, is it Psalm 16, verse 11, um, to be in the presence of Jesus, there's joy. Wonderful joy. Think about the joy that we have on this earth. It's nothing in comparison to the joy that we'll have once we are in the presence of God. Now, again, so understand that the heaven that is now, that exists now, is not the eternal heaven talked about in Revelation 21 because it's really, it's not finished yet. There is a place where the saints are dwelling. And again, I, I don't want to go into a uh, discussion on that tonight. We could talk later if you'd like, but there's so much that we don't know in regards to that. But what we do know is that believers, if they've died anywhere from here to the beginning of creation in the past, they're in the presence of Jesus. They are with Jesus, those that have trusted Christ as their Savior. We do know that for sure based on what the Bible says. But John says in uh, verse, number two, or verse number one, he says, there is no more sea. Now that phrase does not mean there is no more water. Greg Beal notes about this section about the sea. He, he describes it a little bit for us. He says, the sea oftentimes is the origin, the beginning of cosmic evil especially in light of Old Testament background. He talks about that a lot in different passages, especially in Revelation chapter 4, uh, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 15. Another thing about the sea, he says, is that it's often in reference to the unbelieving, rebellious nations who cause tribulation for God's people. He talks about that in Revelation 12, 18, 13, and also in Isaiah 57. Uh, a third part, part that he says, it's the place of the dead in Revelation 20, verse 13. Uh, sea and uh, the sea gave up their dead. We talked about that, I think, last week. And the fourth thing is the pri it's the primary location of the world's idolatrous trade activity because remember, as we discussed a few weeks ago, all of that will cease to exist. Now, in this new heaven, this new earth, the earth won't have a sea that is over 75% of the earth's surface as it is right now. But there will be different arrangements of water. The new heaven and new earth are actually a heavenly pattern of really, I believe, what the Garden of Eden was in miniature on this earth. We will see a tree of life restored. There was a tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Was there not? Yes. So we'll see that tree of life restored with the water that flows directly from where? Anybody know? I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. But where does the water for the tree of life flow directly from? The throne of God. The throne, of God. The throne room of God. So we do know there is water in heaven, but there is not seas in heaven. Now, in this utopia, going back to the Garden of Eden, 
It didn't rain. Plants were watered from beneath the earth, and it's an amazing study when you study all that out. It never rained up until uh, the time of Noah and the flood. People didn't know what it, was, what it was. God had opened the heavens, and all of a sudden the water came down. But the water in the Garden of Eden flowed out in four rivers. They were symbolic of enough water for the whole world. This river that flows from the throne of God, it's the same water, really, that Jesus was telling the woman at the well to drink of, and she'll never thirst again. It's the eternal water, the water of life. Verse 2 shows us this descent, this amazing descent. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is talking about the pure, the spotless uh, a picture of this city. She's without blemish in character. She comes down as a wonderful gift of grace. She is prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. And her character is described later in the chapter. But understand that heaven is a real place with a real people. And what we know with assurity is that there will be a new reality, a new kind of existence in which all the negatives of the first world will be removed. All the discoloration of sin will be gone, will be no more. And again, another debatable topic. Is God going to renovate the old creation or is God going to recreate a new creation? There are scripture references to both, and I can talk about that. But again, I'm sure some of you guys will corner me after church, and we'll talk about that in great detail. But it's another great discussion to have. Is God going to renovate it, or is he going to completely recreate a new creation? Let's go on. Another thing we see is this, verse number three. We will live in intimate and personal communion with God. That's one thing we can count for with surety. Verse number three. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God. Now remember back in the Old Testament when the tabernacle was built. Why was, let's just ask this. Why was the tabernacle initially established? So God could be with the Israelites. And, and really it was his earthly home, right? It was his place where he resided. Now, in heaven there is no need of a tabernacle because why? Because God is the tabernacle. We will see God face to face. And behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Now remember, again, I'm, I'm going back and forth tonight. But in the Old Testament, no one could see the face of God and do what? And live. I mean, even Moses there on the mountain, he had to turn away. And it was the kind of glory of God was so awesome, so magnificent. But in heaven, will we be able to see the face of God? Yes. And that's what should bring us great comfort as well just how awesome our God is, but we will live in this intimate, this personal communion with God. And really, this is one of the most wonderful promises in the entire Bible. It's really what the Bible has been pointing towards since Genesis chapter 1. There's 1,189 chapters in the Bible, and basically 1,187 are pointing towards this time. When we all get to dwell, those that are saved with God, there's no need of a temple, no need of a tabernacle, no need of a church to be built to worship because we'll have Jesus right there with us. And God's tabernacle is his people. He tabernacles among his people. God will be with them and be their God. And I read from one of my commentaries, it says, This voice comes with divine authority and power, for it comes from God's throne. The voice announces that God's dwelling place or tabernacle is with man. He will permanently and forever pitch his tent among his redeemed people. His Shekinah glory will make it home. It's home in and among his people. 
The plural peoples is preferred here as heaven will be a kingdom diversity home for all ethnies, all people groups. It will be wonderfully multicultural and multi-ethnic. There will be no segregated divisions in the New Jerusalem. There won't be, well, there's a division for the Jews and a division for the Greeks and a division for the Americans and a division for the... It won't be that. We'll all be together. And again, what we understand in verse number three, this emphatic yes of in heaven, we will see God. Moving on, verse number four, we will no longer, and I love this, experience the horrible effects of sin. No longer experience the horrible effects of sin. Look, our current world has left so many people beaten and broken, right? You ever feel beaten and broken and just just struggling day in, day out? It's because of the effects of sin. The pain that it inflicts often overwhelms us and crushes us. Verse number four, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and knowing this, that there will be crying in heaven, but he will wipe away those tears, and there shall be no more death. We've all experienced that, right? In some form and fashion, no more death once we get to this eternal state. No sorrow, no crying, no, uh, no pain. And again, I, I feel like myself and many of you, you know, you live in pain every single day of your life, but there's no more pain for the former things are passed away. Now, I'm just going to throw this in there. My wife's not in here tonight. It's not just for her. It's for others as well. But this isn't biblical. This is just extra Chris Thorne stuff. You know, when it's saying that there's no more uh, tears in heaven, it's clearly talking about there's no more shopping because there's no more tears from credit card statements from husbands. <laughs> so again, it's not biblical. It's just Chris Thorne, just extra stuff tonight. Take it for what it is. Rip it up if you want. That's fine. Anyway... <laughs> No more chiropractors, no more surgeries, no more limping, no more stuttering, no more crying because pain is gone. No more aging. Aren't you excited about that? Right? Right, Ryan? No more wrinkles. I don't know why I'm pointing you out, but no more. (laughs) Uh, no, No more varicose veins, right? The real fountain of youth will be here. Nothing will ruin or rot or rust. No more thirsting, no hungering. No itching, no blindness, no deafness, no diabetes, no cancer, no heart attacks, no scars, no witchcraft or drugs or alcohol, no divorce or child abductions or accidents, no more bills. Praise God for that. And the list goes on. All will be wiped out by the horrible effects of sin. I go back to Revelation 7 verse 17 where it says, basically, the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to the springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. Isaiah 25 verses 8 and 9 says that he will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. Oh, that day it will be said, look, this is our God. We have waited for him. He has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let's rejoice and be glad in his salvation. I like what Adrian Rogers says. He says, death is only a comma to the Christian, not a period. Scott Duvall says, like a compassionate parent, Caring for a suffering child, God will wipe away all tears. The next thing we see in verses 5 and 6 tonight, we're going to stop at verse number 8 and go into the, more of the characteristics of the city in the next time that we meet. But the next thing we see is this. We will rest in the sure promises of God. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Writes, and again, There are several occurrences in Revelation where an angel or the voice of God is telling him to write or to not write. And here's the time where he says to write this down. Write, for these words are what? 
true and faithful. You can take it to the bank. What I'm telling you to write is true. It's going to happen. And again, you think back to verse number four with the pain, the sorrow, the crying, the death, and tears, and all that stuff. You think about our present world and our present culture. It's hard to imagine a day when there is no more effects of sin. But God is telling John to, hey, write this down, take it to the bank, because what I say is true. It's faithful. I am true. I am faithful. Verse number six, and he said it to me, it's done. It's finished. I, I think of the saying on the cross. What was the saying on the cross that basically means it's finished? Anybody remember from the Greek? Yeah, to telestai. To telestai kind of reminds me of that. It is finished. It is done. I am Jesus. I am Alpha. I am Omega. I am the beginning. I am the end. He is the first and the last. He is letter A. He is letter Z. Everything in between. I will give unto him that is a thirst. You think about being thirsty on a, on a very hot day and you get a cold drink of water and it, it, it quenches that thirst for a short time, right? It's satisfying, but Jesus is the ultimate satisfaction is really what this is saying. Again, whether this is a complete recreation or regeneration can be debated, but God does tell us here that he makes all things new. And what we know from verse six is that anything we need we can go directly to Jesus to receive. His people will experience complete satisfaction, symbolized by this metaphor of this thirst being quenched from the spring of water. And a quick survey, I don't have it in your notes, but just to run down quickly, a quick survey of Revelation 21 and 22 gives us 12, at least 12 promises we can count on. First thing is this, that God makes a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. A second promise is that chaos, disorder are no more. God will live personally with his people. Four, the effects of sin are eradicated and done away with. Five, all legitimate desires of our heart will be satisfied by who? By God. Our inheritance of heavenly blessings will be plentiful and permanent. The splendor of the new Jerusalem will be magnificent. We learn that later on in the next study. The glory of God will permeate our dwelling place. There is no need for light because he lights it all up. Nations will be guided by God. Protections and peace are perfectly present. You don't have to worry about being afraid. There is no fear there. Product, productivity will be bountiful and breathtaking and perpetual perfect service will be our calling. These promises are not conditional. They're not potentially true. They're not tentative. John is told to write these things down because they are faithful and true from the one that is giving them to us. And the last thing we see in this passage, this, this short section here is this that we will live as God's adopted children with no fear of the second death. Remember, as we've talked about in other series in Ephesians, that we are adopted. If you're a child of God, you're adopted into the family. You're grafted in. He that overcometh, verse number seven, shall inherit all things. There's a lot talks about, about the overcomer early on uh, to the seven churches, but he that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with, fi with fire and brimstone or sulfur, which is the second death. Now this intro, this new creation of eternity concludes with both a word of blessing and a word of warning. Verses seven and eight. Seven is the blessing, eight is the warning. Now, this is very reminiscent of what? The seven churches, remember? Where most of those seven churches, I know that was like 30-some weeks ago. Some of you guys have forgot about that. It's okay. 
But in those seven churches, a lot of times what we talked about was there was that blessing to the church. But there was also a warning to the church as well. I want to read just quickly uh, something about those seven churches, just the, the blessing and the curse. I'm not going to re-preach it or anything like that. But remember, the promise, the blessing that he gave to those churches in Ephesus, that you'll have access to the tree of life. To Smyrna, he said that you will not be hurt by the second death. And here is a reminder. Uh, Pergamum, uh, or Pergamos, that you'll be given hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. Thyatira, I will give authority uh, over the nations and the morning star. Sardis, uh, you will clothed in white garments. Your name will never be blotted out of the, the book of life. And, and I, Jesus, will confess you before my Father and before his angels. Philadelphia, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God, and I will write you uh, the, the name of my God, the name of the new Jerusalem, in my own new name, in Laodicea, even for that church, that you will sit with me on my throne, and just the amazing things that we see in that. But this phrase, that I will be his God and he shall be my son, is defined elsewhere as a statement of special honor. The Davidic covenant promised to David's son Solomon that I will be his father and he shall be my son. The intent of this phrase was to signify a special intimate relationship. It's a special honor associated with the Davidic covenant, including privilege, intimacy, and ruling authority. A person can be a son, listen, and not necessarily behave as a son, right? But a true son reflects a life of obedience. Jeremiah 7 talks about that. A willingness to yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit is characteristic of the sons of God. Throughout all eternity, we will be the adopted heirs of a perfect heavenly father. And verse number eight again provides the stark contrast. Now I want you to understand as I walk through this quickly, God provides a selective but not exhaustive list of the persons or people who will not be in heaven. And there are eight specific sins that are noted here that characterize the lives of those who will spend eternity separated from God. The first one is the fearful, or you can say the coward. This is those that never accepted Christ, afraid to take a stand. Fear is an amazing thing to overcome, but 2 Timothy 1.7 tells us that fear is not from God, and it's the opposite of what? Faith. So only those who have truly been born again will inherit this life. He goes on and talks about the unbelieving. These are those who did not believe at all in Christ or the Bible. And we probably all met people like that. He goes on, the, the abominable or the vile, you can say. Not just sinners, but these have committed abominations. Now from God's perspective, I want you to listen closely because there's several passages I'm just going to walk through quickly. From God's perspective, there's no difference between the big sins and the little sins. You know, we like to categorize things, don't we? We like to classify what is a big sin and what is a little sin, but in God's eyes, a sin is a sin. It's disobedience to a holy God. And this really is an encouragement of what won't be there. And we need to understand from a human perspective what these things are and really what some of the abominations that is referenced here or some of these vile actions are referenced here. I'm not going to read every single one, but I'll give them. If you want to write these down, you're more than welcome to. Leviticus 18.22. It talks about homosexuality. Now, in our culture, that's a hot topic issue, isn't it? I can go deep on this one. But in Leviticus 18.22, it 
it refers and references the, 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 the fact that homosexuality is an abomination or it's repulsive in God's eyes. Now, we like to say the opposite. Oh, it's just, they're just being who they're supposed to be. No, in God's eyes, it is an abomination. It is repulsive. And people are like, oh, I don't like when pastors and preachers say that kind of stuff. Well, I don't necessarily like to say it either, but it's biblical. And it's truth. And we have to go back to God's word as the truth. You see, we, we try so hard to be PC, right? Not Pastor Chris, but politically correct. <laughs> Got you there. We try so hard to be politically correct today. But what we need to be is BC, not before Christ, but biblically correct. And that's what a Christian needs to understand. And that's what I want us so desperately to understand. And that's why I preach so hard and passionately and teach passionately. Because I want us to know what the Bible teaches and what the Bible says. You know, the Bible is our authority, is it not? Now, it doesn't mean we should just hate those and cast those wicked, abominable people out. We should still love them and show them the love of Christ. Should we not? Yes, we should. And there are Christians that don't act like a Christian because let's just cast them off and they just need to go burn in hell. No, we need to show them the love of Christ and show them who Christ is and love them the way that Christ loved us and loved the church and gave his life for them. But Leviticus 18 specifically says that. Deuteronomy 17.3, write that passage down. It talks about astrology and horoscopes, how they are abominations. In Deuteronomy 18, it says, basically it's talking about consulting with a medium or a fortune teller or a wizard or someone who communicates with the dead. They have committed an abomination in the eyes of God. Proverbs 20 says cheating in business is an abomination. That false balance. Proverbs 12 says that compulsive lying is an abomination. Proverbs 16 says a heart full of pride is an abomination. Really, there's more that we can talk about in reference, but those are very important to understand. And heaven, really, what this is saying, what John is telling us, is that heaven is off limits to these things. Now, don't miss this truth. Any of these people can be saved, right? Any of them can be. And you don't have to commit an abomination to be lost, just one sin. Well, they've committed this abomination, so obviously they're lost, and then there's no hope. No, and I've never committed that abomination, so I'm okay. No, no, one sin, one act of defiance, one act of rebellion against the holy God is condemnable to, to death, to punishment, to hell. And that's why we need a Savior. And we have a Savior, the precious Lamb of God. It continues on. It talks about murderers. Now, this really... <clears throat> Think about this. this. This would include all forms of homicide as well as something our country is very well known for. Abortion. You know, the U.S. Supreme Court may have legalized it, but God's court in heaven says no. Whoremongers or sexually immoral in verse number 8. Those are people who have lived sexual lifestyles apart and contrary to God's plan and purpose. You want to know what God's purpose is? Study your Bible. Ask Brother Mike. He'll be glad to. He's preparing him to pastor. <laughs> Another thing he says, sorcerers. This could mean witchcraft, but I think there's a deeper meaning here. The Greek word here is pharmakia. It's where we get our word pharmacy. I'm not saying pharmacies are of the devil. Don't, don't get me wrong here. Calm down. Calm down. I believe it's talking about drugs and other chemical dependence. The root meaning of this group of Greek words, um, really it's kind of one who gives potions. 
These particular sorcerers were persons able to prepare and dispense potions. Why did they dispense these potions? Well, it wasn't to relieve an illness. It was actually to stimulate hallucinations and visions. So that's what is referenced here in this. And then idolaters. Again, we can talk a lot about that. But anything that takes the rightful place of God is and can be an idolater. This is talking about the ones also who are blatantly putting something over the true God and worshiping it solely. And as we've already seen in the tribulation, this is going to be very prevalent when the world, most of the world, will bow down to the image of who? The Antichrist, the beast. Then it continues on there in verse number 8, and all liars. And really this is talking about those who habitually deceive other people. Now, none of these types of people will have access to the New Jerusalem. They will spend eternity in that lake that burns with fire, with sulfur. That's the second death. Now, you, you might look at this list and you're like, man, I, I, I'm one of those things. Now, you can still repent. You can still change. You can still get your heart right with God. And if you're already saved, understand that you are kept. You are secure, right? You are His. Nothing can, you know, we often, you know, we often refer to it, and I, I think... Mike did a great job in the ordination council about this, but, you know, we often refer to, you know, no one should pluck him out of God's hand. Like, you think about, like, oh, I got, a, I got a, a football in my hand, and you can't rip it out. But really, it's, it's like engraved, right? It's, it, we're in his hand. You can't rip that away because it's, it, we are God's. So that's not what this is talking about. It's talking about those apart from Christ, and it's really referencing specific individual types of sins that won't be there because sin is going to be eradicated. It's going to be gone. You know, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1 says that God has put eternity in their hearts. It's great to know that what God has planted in our hearts, this longing in our souls, will be fully and completely satisfied in the new heaven and the new earth. And we haven't even really begun to exhaust all of what heaven is going to be like. Because in the next section, verse 9 through the first part of chapter 22, we see the characteristics of this great city, this future city that will one day come down from, from the heavens. But really, as we study this, it's, it's really just another understanding of who our God is and who His Son, Jesus Christ, is. You know, think of the verse in Psalms, O taste and see that the Lord is good. I want to close out with some things um, from, um, where's it at? Hang on, let me find it. It's lost it. It's gone forever. Oh, there it is. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, I like some of his teachings, but he gives some helpful uses to kind of negate some, some things um, that will not be present in eternity, things that we will not miss. And it kind of runs back to the list. No more sea. Why? Because chaos and calamity will be eradicated. No more tears because hurtful memories will be replaced. No more death because mortality will be swallowed up by life. No more mourning because sorrow will be completely comforted. No more crying because the sounds of weeping will be soothed. No more pain because all human suffering will be cured. No more thirst because God will graciously quench all desires. No more wickedness because all evil will be banished. No more temple because the Father and the Son are personally present with us. No more night because God's glory will give eternal light. No more closed gates because God's doors will always be open. No more curse because Christ's blood has forever lifted the curse. 
And what we see in this final closing of this passage tonight is this, that God will establish a new heaven and new earth where Christ will spend eternity among his redeemed people in perfect and constant communication. And again, I, I can't wait for that day. I long for that day, but at the same time, let's not be so heavenly-minded that we lose sight of Jesus and what he has called us to do. Let us set our affections on things above and realize that God has a plan, God has a purpose for our lives. And the purpose that he has is while we are on this earth to live for him, to do what he has called us to do. As we have looked at exhaustively in the book of Acts, to live on mission, to live commissioned the way that he has commissioned his church to live. And again, I I fear that so many of us are failing. Look, I fail so many times in the Christian life. But understand, until we get to our future home, there's still a job to do. There's still so much to be accomplished. There are souls that need to be saved. And we can debate theological issues until we're blue in the face. And some people just love to debate. They love to debate so much that they fail still to do what they're supposed to do. And I have no problem discussing things with people. But one thing I remember in Bible college, and it was like, you know, the hotbed for debating you know, especially in the dorm rooms and stuff like that. It was, it was crazy. But some of these guys, all they like to do is just debate every facet of the scriptures. And yet I never saw them going out and doing what they're supposed to do, living on mission, showing the love of Christ to other people. I mean, they studied their Bible, they knew their Bible, but it was just to debate other people and show how wrong they were. That's not a characteristic of Christ. Christ didn't come to prove how wrong you are, right? No. He, he came to show you that you need a Savior, to lovingly show you that you need a Savior. And that's the point I'm trying to make tonight, that understand all this stuff about heaven, there's still so much more that we don't know, that we don't understand, but still, we have a job to do. We have a purpose on this earth. 